0: Hello, welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, bringing you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. One of the most defining traits of a successful conversation at Hay, if not the most important, is the relationship between the interviewer and the author. When we programme events, a lot of time goes into trying to pair the right personalities, interests, and professional backgrounds. It's not an easy task, and it can produce some unpredictable results, but when it works well, something magical happens. This discussion from Hay Festival 2021 between Ethan Hawke and David Mitchell is one of those special conversations. Although we've really missed live events for the past couple of years, there was something to be said for watching people talk from the comfort of their own home, creating a level of intimacy in their conversation that you might not catch on stage. And these two really connected over Ethan's work, and more specifically his novel A Bright Ray of Darkness. It's an absolute joy to listen to.
1: I learned quickly of the power, the absolute nuclear power of the deceit attached to any kind of storytelling. Uh, Basically, wither that nuclear power. Why does narrative work despite the deceit? Have you got any thoughts on that, please?
2: Wow. Um, You know, it's funny that you say that because, you know... I guess I'm, I'm just talking about point of view and that how we frame any kind of story and what point of view is, it is very powerful. And, and one of the things that storytelling does is it often uh, makes point of view invisible because if, if you do it right, it seems like the truth. You know, like if I'm telling you the story about Abe Lincoln and he walked outside and he had an ax in his hand and he got a splinter and he was frustrated that morning and he couldn't chop the wood. And all of a sudden you're in Abe Lincoln, right? It's just storytelling. You just make, you're just spinning a yarn. But the illusion yeah. is that you know anything at all about Abe Lincoln and his splinter and what the morning air was like or, and I, we, We want, I don't know, we long for stories. I do, and so you long to believe. You want to believe and you want to be led. And I think fiction makes sense out of life. What I like about prose and and books and literature, any kind of storytelling, movies and plays, I like somebody taking this absolute chaos that is the external world outside my house that makes all this noise and is scary. And I don't know if people like me or people hate me. And I don't know if I did the right thing on Wednesday. And I don't know if I'm going to do the right thing tomorrow. And, you know, and and somebody makes sense out of it, Mm -hmm. gives it a beginning, middle and an end. Uh, It's very pleasing to me, but that's a lie, you know, and that's the mystery Mm -hmm. of we need it and we want it like water, you know, but, life doesn't have a beginning, middle, and an end. It doesn't work in a clear structure uh, where we learn things and then it blossoms into some great revelation, you, you know? Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I don't know, mm-hmm. I, I'm moved by that deceit. And I I, I want, I mean, you ever noticed like, if you look at a, a Jackson Pollock painting or something, you know, one of those crazy paintings with the lines, mm-hmm. If you stare at it long enough, your brain somehow starts to see meaning in it. You start to like think you know yeah, what yeah. it's about. You know, and, and I think we do yeah. that all the time to books that people give us or we listen to music and we, we make sense out of what it means to us right now. And we can't help it. We're always doing that. You know, my wife goes to the grocery store. She comes back with a story about the grocery store. You, you know about yeah. what happened. And I, I just yeah. think it's what we do. It's we're trying to make sense out of our lives, and and I think we need it. And the the character William Harding is talking about that in that moment, because one of the events of the novel is him understanding. For me, you know, it's you, 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 you write these things, and you put them out, and sometimes I'm not sure how much of what I'm doing. Intellectually lands, and how much I'm doing that subconscious that works that's beyond you know. Or, but for me, understand. One of of the central events of the novel is him learning that he's the bad guy in the play that he's doing. Like I'm trying to play. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I love (laughs) that bit. There's this thing of of you know my character when I'm an actor. There's my character and that word is so interesting to me because people are often talking about well does that person have good character or bad character and invariably when you're acting you very quickly have to ask yourself the question well what is my character what's Ethan's character right and and you know I can sit here and talk about you know if I'm playing John Brown I can talk about John Brown and what he thinks and what he keeps in his pockets and what kind of person he is and what his formations of his psyche are but invariably eventually I have to ask the same questions of myself. What do I have in my pockets? What is, who am I? If somebody were playing me, what would I be like? Uh, yeah. And and we often want to be the hero. And I wanted to write something about discovering that sometimes in life, you're not the hero for some in someone else's story for a larger story. And, and, and that's, and that's a valuable role to play. And, and that's the, the unity of opposites that you want to be the good guy. In fact, you are the bad guy. I, I find all that interesting. And so the deceit of storytelling is I know for myself, I tell the narrative each and every day from the point of view of somebody trying to prove to themselves that they're, that they're good, right? That my actions yeah. make sense yeah. and that I'm not malevolent and that I want things to work out. And yet, invariably, I end up hurting people's feelings. And so, like, the, where I'm not good, I didn't do the right thing to them. Anyway, it's a long-winded answer that yes. I didn't even arrive at. An- no,
1: no, uh, no, 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 it's. Uh, you did. It's a two-part answer, um, and where and the bridge between those two parts is the human need to find order in the hurly-burly chaos of reality. Uh, and what William Harding discovers—I uh, love that section where, oh my God, I'm the bad guy here—is uh, that everyone does this. Everyone turns the chaos of reality into order. You don't get to say. Uh, how you appear in somebody else's order. You have some control over your own, but you don't get to say that. And that's a fundamental, I think, that's a fundamental um, path on the road to enlightenment of adulthood. Not everyone is going to like you. It's simply impossible. And to try to do that, as the character discovers, and as another uh, character, your director, the glorious J.C. Callaghan, says... um, uh, to try to do that, will just to try to be the good that desires eyes will send you insane down, down that road for sure, not being some purpose. This leads to my third tertiary themes of your novel, which is fame. Have social media and a smartphone changed inherently what it is to be famous? Or is the 21st century fame just 20th century fame with a bit of a remix and snazzy production effects? There's a part two, but I'll let you... Uh, tackle that if you would, because you've seen both sides of it. You've seen pre-digital, big-scale A-list fame and post-digital. I'm just curious, is it different fundamentally, or is it just a a more saturated version of the former?
2: Your your question has the answer in it. I mean, it is different and it's not. I mean, if we're going to use Shakespeare as a lifting off point for conversation, One of the fun things about playing a 400-year-old play is you realize how much the real themes of our life are are consistent throughout time. I mean, yeah, phones change things a little bit, styles change, but the essence of having people stare at you or treat you as other is consistent. And what's upsetting about the smartphones and Facebook and Instagram and, and that kind of stuff What's hard about it is the same thing that was hard before the internet, which is simply when people treat you as other, it's isolating and it, it makes you feel like you're in a zoo. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I remember people had a lot of, uh, you'd often hear that Paul Newman wouldn't sign autographs. You know, he had this thing, he didn't want to be bothered. Mm And I often think about that now and go, what would he, what would he think if he was stopped all the time for a photo? And my daughter did the coolest thing when we were, she was young, she was about 13 and she decided that she wanted to do a photo essay. So anytime that somebody would ask me for a picture, she would say, can I take your picture and I want just a brief uh, information about you. You know, tell me your name, where you're from, and why you wanted my dad's picture. Right? And
1: wow. Wow. That's cool.
2: It was really cool. We were driving cross country, and, and she would do this. And you'd be amazed at how many people didn't want her to take their picture. Um, the, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's really, okay to take yours. But...
2: But, but they got nervous about this kid <sighs> asking them too many questions. And what does she want to mm. know? And what was she going to do with it? And... Also, it was fascinating how many people didn't know who I was. And they they (laughs) They wanted your photo, but they didn't know who I was. And and that's (laughs) that's really telling because they know that you're famous. You know, like say say you and I, let's say I was walking through an airport, you've been really kind to me in this interview. You know, a lot, you know, we before this started, we had a really nice conversation about Gattaca in a meaningful way that that movie related to your life. But if we'd never met before, there's a strong chance that if you saw me in the airport, you wouldn't stop me and ask me for my picture or anything like that. And so, and yet you have a strong connection to that movie or you have a good reason that you might want to, but you wouldn't. The person who does oftentimes is a person that just goes, Who's that? What's he? I'm going to go meet him but they just are a person that has a desire to have an interaction with that thing that is celebrity. You know, they don't know if I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. They just know I'm famous, right? And so Uh-oh. it does a weird thing to you because you realize that there's nothing about this interaction that should make you feel good. It's not a compliment, yeah. you, you know? No. It, it's, it, it, it can be a compliment and when it is a compliment, Often it feels like it, but nine times out of 10, it's really not a compliment. And uh, so I don't know. I think the answer is I feel for young people today, these kids who, oh, I don't know, they get too drunk at a party or they forget to wear their underwear or, you know, or Mm -hmm. they deliberately Mm -hmm. don't wear their underwear, whatever version it is. But, But that event follows it becomes part of their narrative it becomes part of their obituary so to speak you know and that didn't happen when i was a kid i could go to some event make a complete ass out of myself and not have to answer for it the rest of my life you know makes it yeah yeah yeah, i I, I feel for young people who are experiencing celebrity now because i think it's very very difficult uh I think it's the same thing that it was. I just think the temperature is is hotter. It's hotter in the kitchen than it was.
1: Mm-hmm. And its memory seems to be longer as well. It's there forever on YouTube. It will go viral. It will be turned to gifts and memes. And well, I mentioned part two of the question. I think you've already answered it, but uh, I just like talking about John Lennon's Milkman uh, in the oh, mid-60s when asked about his obligations to his fans. He said something like, I could do a Scouse accent here, but I won't. When I buy milk from my milkman, I get a bottle of milk, and that's the deal. I don't also expect a piece of the milkman, or his autograph, or his photograph, or a tour of his house. I just want good, fresh milk in exchange for my money. And my records of the Beatles, they're milk. Um, it seems almost, um, from your last answer, that your films are milk. And that's the way it should be. And in the sane world, that's the way it ought to be but it's not a very sane world sometimes, is it?
2: Well, it isn't, and you know, you use, John Lennon has such an interesting mind. There's the very famous quote, I love that Milkman quote, by the way, but you know, there's the the more famous quote is the one about um, how he got in all the trouble in the States for saying that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a sidebar, if you actually read that, the longer interview that that came from, one of the things that he was saying that is so interesting is that people thought that was so scandalous to say that he was more popular than Jesus. But what he went on to say is, of course, why are people upset by that? Jesus isn't trying to be popular. Our obsession, this, yeah. this, this idea that people think that that's an uh, outrageous thing to say, as if Jesus's popularity was important to him. Right. Part of the whole message of Jesus is antithetical to popularity. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's living a a meaningful substantive life, you you know, and and so we as a culture put such a high value on popularity and it's not anything that really should be valued because it doesn't take much to be popular.
1: Um, Shakespeare talked about that, didn't he? Uh, it's in the famous uh, "All the World's a Stage" speech, and he talks about um, that bubble reputation. That yeah. is it—the bubble in the cannon's mouth. It, it's nothing. It, it goes in an instant. Um, it also reminds me of a Saturday Night Live skit I saw one time about uh, Jesus Christ running for office in America and how the news cycle would look when the news broke that he was advocating healthcare for everybody for free. <laughs> um, Can I talk about craft for a little bit? Uh, you're a structure, uh, you are a structure nerd Mr Hawke uh, and I say that with the affection and if I may the authority also of a structure nerd. Uh, a bright ray of darkness is divided into the acts and scenes of an Elizabethan farmer complete with an intermission. Uh, I'd like to ask if the story of a film star embarking on a Broadway run just happened to sit perfectly onto this uh, five part structure subdivided into scenes or did structure inform uh, your creation your construction of the plot any thoughts on structure more generally I like how um, plot and character tend to grab the glory but if the structure of anything isn't right it will not work,
2: over to you well I just so appreciate that question because i am a structure geek i people oh you take a film like boyhood and they think it's just this kind of collage of moments from life and there's an actual architecture to how that film is made and it it's as you get inside of it what makes such a long and laboring movie that's seemingly about nothing have a narrative pull is the architecture of it, and I could get into that, but especially if you're allergic to plot like I am like i the divisive plot that people can use all the time at midnight tonight, the Russians are coming, and if we don't stop the bomb from arriving at the train station by midnight, all the world, like, okay, all of a sudden the plot's working, right? You, you got to turn the page, even though it's, it's a false god, there's nothing there, there's no, and, and mm-hmm. so if you're not going to do that, the reader, the audience, whatever the audit, they need to know why they have to keep reading. And so that's where architecture comes in. And I find it very exciting Uh, the math of art, you know, Mm. I I find it really, the geometry of it. The architecture of this novel came to me before anything else. Um, I, I was very frustrated. I'd written a book when I was about 30 and I worked really hard on it, you know, in my own little mind, you know, and I realized when I read reviews of the book and I did a book tour and talked to people, I realized what a big obstacle my celebrity was for the reader. That it was, it it stood between the book and the reader. It was in the way of them experiencing the novel, the way I, I, I just got very blue on this book tour because I'd worked really hard on this novel and all anybody wanted to talk to me about was reality bites or what aspect of the book was stolen from my life. And, and they just couldn't buy into, I created a very fictional character. This, I had a, I had two narrators. I had a male and a female and one was a nurse and one was in the military. And I worked really hard to create this, this fictional world that was definitely not me. And, and all anybody wanted to do was take it apart and figure out where, where the real was. And I thought, wow, this is so strange. If actors write movies, nobody has a problem with them writing. But if actors Yeah, write, yeah. You know, actors throughout time write movies and plays and everybody thinks that's cool. But if you write fiction or prose, you've somehow stepped out of your lane. And I just couldn't figure out why. Whoa. It's the same, it's storytelling, it's the same thing. Why is my fame so in the way of the reader's experience. And I met this really amazing German publisher. And he said, you're having the dilemma that famous writers have. The trouble is you're not a famous writer, you're a famous person who writes. You know, he's talking about Philip Roth or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, like the, the reader came in with a lot of baggage of who they thought Gabriel Garcia, this mm-hmm. this guy was Gabriel Garcia Marquez's editor. And like, he was a really smart guy. and." And he Mm. said to me, he said, you know, if you want to have anything real to offer literature, like if that's your goal, then you really need to just take that obstacle away for the reader and write about acting. Um, And he said, if you were to if you were just to make your protagonist an actor and create nothing for them to break down right? They would just accept it. It would, ju- it, it would still be fiction. It would still be, y- y- you know, uh, stories. It's not you, it's a fictional, but they, but it won't be in their way because they'll enable, they'll see the character and the author as one. And he said, if you can That's take- ingenious. Yeah. He was, I was sitting at a dinner and he said, if you could take people's superficial act interest in acting, cause let's face it, people buy people magazine and all this gossip, tabloid stuff. They're interested in mm. actors. And what if you, he said, I can't think of at this dinner table, he said, I can't think of any or very many first person narratives of the life of an actor that are like good books. And, and he said, True. So, True. and he was going like, it would take Don DeLillo 20 years to study the world of acting the way that you have. So why don't you take what you've learned about mm. acting and give people a substantive novel? So, okay, this is the long answer, but I left this Good dinner answer. party and I went back to the hotel. I was like, well, if I was to try to write again, I really should write about acting. He's right. That would be really a interesting challenge to just look it straight in the eyes. And the structure of this came to me. I have it on a notebook. It was like act one, act two, act three. Act, I said, I'd do a whole novel on the production of a play. And it would start with the first day yeah. of rehearsal. It would end with striking the set. You know, the middle of the book would be yeah. opening night. You know, oh, one chapter should be a two-show Wednesday. All five books, chapters, whatever you call them, you know, came to me. Uh, on, it's on a single, like, uh, you know, just like a little book like this. I had it on a little piece of paper, Yeah. It, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, five acts. I saw it, clear as a bell. Yeah. And um And then I started, I had a notebook of each act of interest, you know, because I've been acting for 30 years and like, well, so what are the, what do I remember about first days of rehearsals? You know, what do I remember? What happens at the first meeting? Okay. Bagels and orange juice. And, oh yeah, the, the union deputy being elected, all the boring crap, you know, tape being put out on the floor, marking out the, everything that was interesting to me, right? What it's like to meet your scene partner that you know you're going to have to kiss. You know, what what it's like to meet an actor and you're like, oh, you're playing my wife. Hello, ma'am. And you know in the back of your mind, (laughs) oh, I'm going to spend the next nine months of my life kissing this person every day. Weird, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so you just start, and then what's, what's interesting about opening night? What's interesting about the first preview? What's interesting about closing night? And I started these... Notebooks of impressions, memories that fit into that architecture, and I started working on the novel that way. It was always, always in in that shape. So your question about uh,
1: I is, love that answer, Ethan. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's 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 a great and uh, more generous answer than the question deserved, really. <laughs> yeah. But but you're absolutely right, and your German editor was absolutely right. Um, other people's jobs are fascinating anyway, even if that job just happens to be a bus, uh, a bus driver. Like um, I watched um, that um, Adam Driver movie, yeah, right, Patterson the other day, the yeah. Jim John Moosh one. Just it, it's only a bus driver, but it's fascinating if you're not a bus driver, uh, just to know what only bus drivers know.
2: <laughs> the it, joke it, I would always make is like, I want to do for the actor what Melville did for the whaler. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, being on a yeah. boat whaling is really interesting. If you really know something about it, you can make anything interesting. Yeah, if you yeah, give
1: yeah. Details. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, lo- um, I loved also what you were saying about the freebie that a gift uh, that structure can give uh, what boyhood ends up delivering, as well as all of the other themes about the human relationships, about the family, about the mum, about the divorce, about all of these things, it's also about the passage of time. Not because because anyone talks about the passage of time, but because we see you as this young dad in 2005, and then you're older (laughs) and grey, At no offence, by the middle of the next decade. Uh, What a beautiful free gift of a film. Uh, um, What a beautiful free gift.
2: that Uh, That film is about time. All the rest. Just from
1: the structure. The,
2: I think, just yeah. from the structure. Yeah, yeah. It's like you could, that's yeah. it's a graph. It's, it's United States, life in the United States from six to 18 is graphed out for you. So each little film is like, you know exactly where it's going. This grade, that grade, this grade. First, you know, that movie starts in first grade and ends with his graduation. The architecture is extremely simple. You don't really see it when you're watching it. But it's really clear, and the movie isn't about divorce or alcoholism or all these little details that happen in the life. It's about time itself. That's what the mm, movie mm, about. Mm, mm, the main character, isn't is- that cool? Isn't that so cool? <laughs> you know, is the main yeah. character? Yeah. You just. You yeah.
1: Yeah. Witness- if I may say so, Mr. Hawk, uh, you do the same thing on a lot more. You and Richard Linklater, uh, the director, do the same thing on an even larger scale with the uh, uh, with your uh, Before trilogy. Um, it's three acts, and I think. With the potential for more, if you so wish, uh, in the evolution of a the world and b this thing we call romantic love, which is the dominant narrative of love right now in the cultures that both you and I are acculturated by, uh, uh, on an even more epic scale, it's the decades go by, not just a decade, but the decades, uh, and this phenomenon where where, where uh, an artifact a piece of art an album or a film acts as a milestone in the life of the consumer or the viewer or the listener uh, that trilogy so far and I hope counting I, I, I would love to see what the fourth and the fifth acts are because we're, we're, we're aging at roughly the same uh, from roughly the, I think i am a little bit older than you but we're, uh, but, but but we're aging but we're in, we're in the same pack um, and and um, just uh, just what an epic free gift from the structure. I'll stick with craft if I may. Uh, I just love your metaphors and your similes. They jump out at me as uh, at some point you've either internalised or consciously embraced the rule. No metaphors in your writing, no similars in your writing, unless they are four-star or five-star similars. And if you're not sure if a piece of imagery is three or four, then it's three. Uh, most of yours are five. I'm going to read out a few examples. Uh, the Coke was as in cocaine, not Pepsi. The Coke was whipping my mind the way an old time stagecoach driver might whip some poor sweaty horses. Or, uh, I love that, uh, the feeling of making a house laugh with a 400 year old joke is like skipping a rock 17 times across a pond. Ah, that's So exactly, I love the 17 in that. I've just got one more about the peacock I didn't write down here, but um, um, I had taken such pride in our marriage Oh, sorry, in my marriage, in our love, like a peacock strutting about, thinking he was responsible for his feathers. Ah, oh, if I'd written that, I would just be—I would be so damn smug for twenty-four hours. I would be insufferable. I just want to ask: Have you got a metaphor for making metaphors? Do you have to craft and tune them and build them meticulously, like like a Sicilian mandolin maker? <laughs> or does your imaginary, uh, does your remarkable imagery just flutter up and land on your hand like Snow White's songbirds? Over to you.
2: Meta metaphors. Well, you are clearly a writer, and I I love the way that you think because uh, you're on to me. You can already tell. No, I I come at writing as an actor, and so a lot of times when I hit the page they're kind of controlled uh, improvisations. I let myself just go. And I, if, if I have one thing that I'm grateful for that I see in, in young people sometimes is people often over edit themselves and they, they really want to do good work, you know, to, to be a good writer be a good painter or a good dancer or whatever. And this desire for excellence, which is noble and right, is a real obstacle for them uh, because that desire prevents you from being playful. And uh, I th- what I do is I let myself riff and go and I know I'm not any good and I know it's never going to be any good and I give myself permission that the act itself has value. the act the desire to be creative, to express yourself, to make sense out of your life, it has. it's not up to you and I if our books are any good, right? It's just not up to us. But we know that the attempt in society has great value. So somebody's got to try and, and we'll let the world figure out what they need. It's not up to us to decide what the world needs. So I riff and I play. And then I go through, just like what you said, is that Is that a good metaphor? Not really. I've heard that before. Get rid of it. You you know, I, I basically just, I, I, I edit later, you know, I'm I'm one of the things that I love about writing. I I find the, you know, the first draft of this novel was twice as long, you know, it was 500 and something pages. The first one. And I just (laughs) went through over a period of time and I really love doing this. I, I, you just, I just start cutting. No, 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 no. Dumb, 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 dumb. But I do it later. I don't do it while I'm, yeah. and I enjoy it. It's like, yeah. co- it's coats of paint. The first coat of paint, I give myself permission to throw paint everywhere. As if I pretend I was a genius, you know? Oh, I'll just write like a mm-hmm. madman, right? And then you sit back mm-hmm. and you read and you go, okay, so you're clearly not a genius, uh, but how can we make this okay? Like, and you start mm. And I enjoy both. Mm. You clean up the paint, you know? Okay, let's, let's get the coats of paint even. And, and so the, the, the ones that you mentioned, I'm so happy that they made you laugh. And they just, they lasted multiple reads, right?
0: Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next week will be award-winning journalist Carol Cadwallader discussing big data and the subversion of democracy with Oliver Buller from Hay Festival 2019. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends and giving us a rating wherever you're listening. This podcast was presented by Poppy Evans. See you next week.